0: the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Building a Multifamily Office, How an Ex-Goldman Advisor Experienced Autonomy and Growth in Independence. It's a conversation with Gary Hirschberg, CEO and founding member, Aaron Wealth Advisors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. And alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant and while you're at it if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape please feel free to share this episode or the series widely advocating on behalf of his clients is something near and dear to gary Hirschberg's heart in fact before landing at Goldman in 2006, Gary was in the world of nonprofit, serving as director of development at Vanderbilt University, Hillel, and assistant director of developmental activities at Georgetown University. So it's a bit of a paradox that he would transition from working in fundraising, guiding people to make selfless decisions with their money, to ones that he describes as more selfish, but in a necessary way. It was a serendipitous meeting with a friend that led him to Goldman Sachs in 2006, where he built a business managing some billion four in assets for high net worth clients. Yet it was this whole sense of advocacy that made Gary question whether he was being limited at Goldman to really act as his client's fiduciary. That is to truly serve on their behalf without restriction on what he could or couldn't do for them. Plus there was the nagging desire to build a brand of his own one that would be associated with him and not the firm he worked for. So in 2018, Gary left Goldman to build Aaron Wealth Advisors with the help of Dynasty Financial Partners. Less than four years later, the Chicago-based firm expanded its footprint to the West Coast, an office headed by ex-Goldman VP Alexander Fidjinski. In this episode, Gary talks about leaving the Goldman imprimatur behind to build an RIA. He shares what his decision making process was like, what's driving his extraordinary growth, and much more. It's a conversation that's near and dear to my heart because our firm had the privilege of representing Gary in his move. So let's get to it. Gary, I'm so grateful that you're making the time to join me today on the show. Thank you. You're welcome let's jump in. Lots to unpack, lots to hear about your story. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your background, how you morphed from a career in the nonprofit world to wealth management.
1: Well, originally, I actually was in Palm Springs, California. Flew out of California. I I always joke they kick you out when you're 18, they don't invite back to your 70. So I'm just buying my time in various places. Went to Georgetown University and ultimately got hired by them to do major gift fundraising, uh, which was a great Entry way to philanthropy and working with the same type of families that I ultimately did later in my career. At least I always say to people that uh, I was helping them make a uh, selfless decision, where now I'm helping them make a selfish decision, if you will. Mm-hmm. Later, when I was at Vanderbilt, I also was hired by a subsidiary of Vanderbilt to help them raise money while I was getting my JD MBA there. And as life works in kind of funny ways, I was getting my dual degree in the second year of a four year program really didn't know what I was gonna do. I was in the state planning route on the legal side, but I knew I would probably be a miserable attorney just because I had too much of the markets and entrepreneurial side of me. But I got very lucky and serendipitously the partner who ran the Goldman Sachs Midwest office was on my short list for donations. And I ran into him in a waiting room. I was the meeting beforehand and I said, I gotta cut this meeting short. You know, the partner sitting in the waiting room and he hadn't returned my phone calls for six months. Not surprising. It was director development or whatever. And he was partner at Goldman. But I walked out, gave him an elevator pitch asked him for a significant gift. And he didn't think anything of it. But a week later, he called me. He said, look, I, I don't want to talk about the gift right now. And for the record, they were incredibly generous. Um, but hmm. have you ever heard of Goldman Sachs? And for me, that for the rest was history, is that they recruited me to go into private wealth at a time they were transitioning from brokerage to more of an advisory model, and they were looking for people like me with MBA.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's how I ended up at, at Goldman starting my wealth management career.
0: Thank you. What a great story. So I guess it begs the question, what was it like or how hard was it to build a business from scratch at Goldman all those years ago?
1: You know, funny enough, to me, it was really exciting. You know, like I like challenges like that where I just start from zero, and yeah. I had never set foot in the Midwest. You know, it's on the West Coast, i lived in the East Coast and the South, but never set foot in Chicago before I was hired. So to me, the idea of building something brand new and new relationships was very exciting. And It was wonderful to go start at a firm like Goldman, it has a wonderful reputation. And as far as I was concerned, they were paying me to start a business. And this was in 2006 when I started, so it was before mm-hmm. the downturn. So I got, kind of see the the upside of that framework. But a lot of people comment about, well, you know, Goldman's name really helps you. And to fully enough, and anybody of my tenure or older will tell you that for many years, the name Goldman Sachs didn't necessarily just open up doors. You actually had to explain who you were. <laughs> my famous cold call I made to somebody is that I'm on the phone. He said, you know, in response to me, introducing myself, he said, no, I don't need any suits. Because he was talking about Texas Avenue, right? Uh... He didn't know who I was. And of course, that all changed with the downturn and, you know, the name being more permanent in everybody's mind. But to me, it was all relationships. It always has been. You know, my philanthropic background really helped. Me. Being a JD and a member of the bar in Illinois was incredible, even at a young age. And frankly, just making the relationships to be able to support. And-
0: yeah. And I imagine that it was a pretty wonderful place to work. I mean, it's surprising to me that someone never heard of Goldman Sachs, because in my view, it's certainly, and I think most of the industry's view, the name Goldman Sachs is the platinum standard. You know, it's really a pristine calling card, if you will. So what was it like to work there? And I imagine it was a pretty good place to build a wealth management business.
1: It was great. I mean, the support and the training. And, you know, I always tell Goldman gave me a, a separate master's in finance, you know, mm-hmm. that I never had. And then at the time, they trained people for five months in New York. You know, I know that changed over the years. But to me, that was an invaluable period to be able to know that I could manage these families' money of significance, right? I was confident in the legal side of things and taxation, because that was my background. The financial side, they really did teach me and and my colleagues, which many of them I'm so very close with in my class at Goldman, how to do that. And then it was our job to go out and sell it. And we had a lot of wonderful resources. The culture at the time was very much of senior people helping junior people, which is something I really want to replicate in their wealth, by the way. It just was a wonderful time period, and I'm so very thankful for some of those senior people who helped me navigate when I was new and young Mm and trying to build that business and make a presence. And that was really the culture of Goldman at the time, Um, and I, I really think it was very grateful for that opportunity.
0: Yeah. So you left Goldman in 2018. Tell us for perspective, what did your business look like when you left Goldman?
1: So I had a team of two, one partner, one younger advisor, and a number of support folks, total about 1.4 billion of assets from Goldman's terms, probably about a billion of that. I was the direct relationship in terms of that that framework. You know, it was maybe, I don't know, 22, 23 families and a couple of institutions. So very concentrated business, and I was very happy with that. My whole model is still today, as well as when was at Goldman, that I'd rather have very in-depth, complicated, large relationships than hundreds and hundreds of separate relationships that I really don't have the time or ability to dedicate to. And then that's what our business looks like.
0: Right. So... That's a sizable and significant business. And I mean, kudos to you in a thirteen year period or twelve year period to have built a business of that size. So what was going on in 2017 or 2018 that made you want to explore options outside of Goldman?
1: I guess there's a combination of two things. I mean, one would be where I was in my career and my age when I left Goldman. I was thirty-nine years old, you know, at the time. And so I would say long in years of experience, but still young in terms of my longer runway. Probably. So it made me think about like what what I want to do. Do I want to stay 100 percent here or not? And honestly, I, I probably could have and would have. But what is now public, at the time was less public. Goldman was going down a different route. They wanted to create a more retail side of the business, which is their Marcus efforts. And I knew that internally and I could see it and I, you know, I've been a student of of other financial institutions and I could see sometimes when you have such a wonderful ultra high net worth offering, but the firm in general goes down, you know, to a retail side of things, it can affect the brand and ability of you as an advisor to service your ultra high net worth clients. If that's particularly, that was my entire business. So that caused me to start looking around to say, is this really where I want to be? you know, for the rest of my career on behalf of these wonderful relationships that I've developed. Of course, not knowing, not guarantee whether they follow or not, of course, but, you know, I felt pretty strongly about some of the relationships that I had built.
0: Right. So tell me what you mean by more retail, meaning less high net worth focused?
1: Right. Being able to take, you know, either acquire your robo-advisor or having the resources of the firm dedicated to wealth management for those that were more mass affluent were even less because firms that do that, they they just do that. The margins are much higher and the resources there. And a lot of times inevitably either the brand will be associated with that because that's what the firm wants, or they'll be attracted to the margins there and try to institute some of those processes in the ultra high net worth, which just doesn't fit. Right. It's like it's two different businesses. And to me, that was my concern. You know that i had seen that with multiple other firms as well you know honestly i'm, I'm still very avid gold stack stockholder i was like because i, I think they're going to make a ton of money i think they, they do business really well in the space and they're really monetizing their their name and i wish them the best of luck on my behalf selfishly
0: Right. Well, let me ask you a question about that. I've had the privilege of representing not just you, but several other very significant Goldman teams that opted to go elsewhere. And most of them cited two main reasons for moving. One was looking for more investment flexibilities so and more freedom and control, if you will. And the other was a concern that Goldman was becoming more retail. And yet, There are, what, 500 or so advisors in their private wealth unit, and the majority of them service ultra high net worth or high net worth clients. So what were you concerned about, or how specifically did the notion of becoming more retail impact you?
1: I would agree with my colleagues. It is a combination of both. When you become more retail, typically a lot of, and again, this is as people can do things differently, but it does become more product oriented and the products that you create. And that was something that I maniacally was focused on, is not to be restricted to just a Goldman product, but a lot of other firms, I've heard it from others that have gone down this path, it, it just is impossible to avoid, right? Which caused me to feel less, frankly, independent within the firm. And I looked at the independent side of things and said, this makes more sense, right? Because I want to be a, a, a you know, advice oriented only person who can advocate on behalf of our clients. The other part of it is just selling, right, reputational. If all of a sudden you get a reputation to being a retail firm, right, for new people who may not know you as well, and you bring up that brand, it just becomes much more difficult. And I learned that a long time ago. So having your reputation and brand associated with a much larger institution sometimes can really be difficult, right, in difficult times for things that are nothing your fault. And we're all running individual businesses that are very personal to us and our families. Right. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to build a business to have it, you know, sidelined because somewhere else in a 30,000 plus firm did something really bad and unethical. Right. And you're now having to defend that in the front lines of your business. So when I looked at the whole framework, that's when I started to say, you know, maybe it's time to take a look around.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what you're talking about is beginning to feel a sense of incongruence between what you wanted your business to be and the direction the firm was taking. Does that sound right? That's correct. Got it. Okay. Let's talk a bit about your exploration process. I remember you had had your attorney reach out to me to gather some information about my process, our process, without mentioning your name. And obviously what you were concerned about was confidentiality. What were you most worried about?
1: Because I wasn't necessarily ready to jump. Right. And I, I didn't want to make sure at the time, my, my thought process was is that I knew someone like yourself would know a lot of people, but I didn't know you. So I didn't want to accidentally bring out to my current employer that I was looking around. Mm. Right. Which would that was something I was very careful about, or at least trying to. So the best way I knew how to do that was to employ my attorney to confidentially do so. And, you know, funnily enough, you if you remember, it's like he actually gave you misinformation.
0: Yeah, no, no. I do remember, and I'm smiling because it was actually a creative way of doing it. And you're 100% right. Confidentiality is key. It's your business. It's your livelihood. And to take the leap of faith to put your trust in someone you don't know can be scary. So I guess, how did you ultimately overcome that fear to get the courage to come to the table and open yourself up to both me and other firms?
1: Well, I was very glad that we did some of that advanced work because, you know, the timing of me leaving Bowman at that time was not specifically planned at that time, right? It just, the opportunity to leave presented itself in a much more opportune way. You know, I left on Memorial Day. My 90 day garden leave was done on Labor Day. Perfect time. A lot of people are check out for the summer. So that 90 days goes a lot quicker. And for me at the time, I was like, all right, so this makes sense. And it just was a gut instinct I needed to make. So the day, after I left, you know, you had already passed our due diligence framework, so there was no reason not to open up and start having this conversation. But of course, you did a wonderful job to help steward me through the decisions that came later as to what exactly we wanted to do and how Aaron Wealth ultimately was created.
0: Right. And thank you. I appreciate the kind words. So I want to come back to the notion of garden leave because that's a whole topic unto itself. But... A couple of questions before that. Did you always know that your next step after Goldman, as you began to get a sense of incongruence, if you will, between your goals and the firms, did you know that the only right choice for you was to become a business owner or did you really consider other more traditional options too?
1: If you define traditional options as going to another wirehouse and large bank, that part I always knew if I was ever going to leave Goldman, I would not want to go to a, another similar institution. To me, that was jumping from the fire to the firing pan, you know, and, and no amount of money would convince me of that, you know, because it, it just wasn't in my opinion, what's right for the clients. You know, if we're, you're truly running a business the way I believe that the ultra I know should be serviced. I did consider though, not necessarily starting my own business, but joining other RAAs. Right. As you know, you introduced me to a number of them and different models and frankly for the first 30 days out of the 90 that was frantic and figuring out what the story would be and plan and which route we wanted i knew i had something in my head but I was very attracted to the idea of creating my own brand and having that control and being a business owner but one of the other ra's that were in town made it very i loved them they were great and i still compliment them to this day and they were the only people that made me pause on that front and it was a hard decision yeah you know because it was, uh, it was a really wonderful opportunity to potentially join a growing larger institution again but ultimately i came back to i was 39 years old and when was i ever going to take that risk to create something the way i believe should be created and as i joke with the the other you know ra that is involved here as like honestly his offer was so generous it made me realize how much more valuable it is to actually own your own business
0: So it had the
1: opposite effect. It, I, I, unfortunately, I was thinking it, it, it did. It yeah. had the opposite effect because, for me at least, I looked at it and said, mm, that means if I'm successful at this, which certainly there was no guarantee at it at all, if I'm successful at this, I bet you anything the reason they're doing is the ownership, the equity aspect would quickly become a better investment.
0: Yeah. So I want to just comment on that for a second, because that calculus of, should I join an existing RIA or an existing independent firm where they've already made the mistakes, they already have a built-in infrastructure, and a rising tide will lift all boats, and it certainly will be a lot easier to join what's already established and figure something out myself, is a very common calculus. And as you mentioned, There was a great firm, several we originally looked at, but one in particular in Chicago in the final analysis, I think that you were really excited about. And it was a tough decision. So let me ask you, with four years or so hindsight, was it the right decision to have opted for what was certainly more difficult and more risky in the short term to build your own?
1: Yes, 110%. But it was right for me, right? I mean, and I respect other people's decisions. Of what's right for them. It's a level of risk, but ultimately, looking back, my staff knows that I have a plaque in my office that basically says the mantra of how I run things. It's like it's best laid plans in my cement. You can plan all you want, but you got to have that flexibility. But when you look back, you can see that that was the right decision, and it was. It just was. Yeah. It has exposed me to some just amazing people that I've been able to hire and to work with. You know, it really affirmed the relationships that I was able to bring over, right, as well as a lot of new opportunities that never would have come my way had I gone with another institution rather than did it on my own.
0: All right. Why independence in general or specifically? What were you hoping to solve for or to be able to offer clients that you couldn't as an employee of Goldman or any financial institution?
1: So short answer to that is being able to advocate on behalf of my families, that we're so fortunate to have as clients across all aspects of their financial world, not just restricted to one institution, because that's where you work, and not just restricted to investments. To be able to actually advise them on all kinds of investments, all kinds of opportunities from lending to estate planning to taxation to should i buy this house or not literally yesterday i had a phone call with a client of mine i mean it's really evident flowing about whether they should buy a a new home just being able to give that advice where you know when you're in a larger institution sometimes those conversations can get a little dicier because it's not quote unquote approved by that institution Mm -hmm. here we're not customing assets we are literally purely advisors And the independent side, that's what it provides, your ability to do that. And that's what our clients value the most, is that ability they know you're the first person to call, you're above all the other actual asset managers, and they truly have somebody on the same side of the table as they are. So, So that's kind of the short answer, I guess.
0: That's a good answer for sure. So, okay. What about the transition? So first, let's start with the the notion of garden leave. For anyone not familiar, garden leave is a post-employment restriction that certainly private wealth advisors at Goldman have written into their employment agreement. And it essentially says that depending upon your title or your length of service or your own personal agreement, you are still employed with the firm from the day you give notice, but you are essentially on the beach and cannot contact your clients for, in some cases, 60 days or 90 days. So in your case, it was, as you said, a 90-day between Memorial Day and Labor Day. And while, yes, that may have been a good time to do it, pretty scary and painful. I mean, I remember telling you for the first time, talking about, you know, let's really talk about what that means. No contact with clients for 60 or 90 days. How did you get over that? How painful was it?
1: Definitely a real feeling of not being able to, going for one day to have a significant responsibility and then the next to be told you couldn't even talk to anybody. And clearly I had many of my clients call me, you know, which was totally fine. But I had a script, of course, that I had to tell them, mm-hmm. was That I, I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't comment at all. And like, and for anything with their accounts, they had to go back to the existing team that's been assigned to them or the management. And like, and that by far was the most painful because, you know, there were some clients that really wanted to know more information. Now, what made it better again, is that a lot of the relationships are really understanding because they knew who I was ethically, as well as just in general. And they're like, you know what, call me in 90 days. I was like, totally get it. And they understood the contractual obligation, that it wasn't me saying I couldn't talk to them, but it was my employer. And they were fine with that. And most of them were. And post the 90 days, they were very receptive. So
0: your clients are calling you, you're telling them i have made a move, I'm contractually unable to counsel you, and I will be able to talk to you within 90 days. So what did they say to you?
1: Most were really supportive. They were mostly asking whether I was okay to make sure my family was okay. You now, if you asked about whether there was any compliance issue, of course, there wasn't, which are totally legitimate questions. But most of them were incredibly supportive, you know, and just said, again, we'll talk to you in 90 days. I mean, I reassured them. I said, no doubt. I was like, your your money's fine. Your relationship's fine. You have nothing negative to say at all about Goldman. You'll be fine.
0: And you were unable to tell them at that point what your plans were for the future. Is that correct? Correct.
1: I couldn't tell them anyway.
0: Right. Which must have killed you.
1: Yeah, it was hard, and again, it's it's going on faith.
0: You know that
1: your relationships that you have, and and I think this is now having experience of taking a few advisors now over to Aaron Wealth. I I give the same advice. I said you underestimate your relationships with people. If you're doing your job correctly, it's just a natural thing to do is underestimate. But in reality, you should have faith that people don't view you as just a number on a screen. You are important to them and their families. You are helping them with one of the few pillars in the world, right? You know, you can help somebody with their health and you can help somebody with their wealth, right? These are fundamentals for the families we work with. And if you're, we're the key advisor for those people, I was like, you should have faith that they're gonna give you your fair shot. If not just, you know, move on so. you know
0: it's such an interesting comment because last week I did an interview with an advisor from Merrill who said that when he left Merrill offered all of his clients free fees for a year and I asked how did that impact portability and he said you know he wasn't prepared for that he hadn't been expecting it but he wound up with almost total portability maybe there were one or two clients that didn't come and it had and their choice not to come had nothing to do with the free fees it was to do with something else so I think you're right I think most advice Advisors underestimate those relationships, but it's really trusting what you can't see and pretty damn scary.
1: That's absolutely right. The whole transition from the 90 days to afterwards of starting the firm, I don't sugarcoat this for people, particularly if you were starting your own firm and putting your own money up to do so. You know, it was probably the most stressful time I've had in my life. Yeah. you know, at least professional life. And I was like, and would I take it back? Absolutely not.
0: You know, I appreciate your saying that because I think I worry sometimes that when I invite guests onto this show, they talk about all the good stuff. And while right. that's great, I love the positives. I think sometimes people wonder if, you know, what is it really the truth? Are there any negatives? I think it's really honest to say it's not for the faint of heart. It was scary. Oh. It was hard. I would do it all over again, but I wouldn't want to have to.
1: Yeah, no, you, you, I'm I'm laughing if you see me and smile on my face because I, I joke in the RA world, everybody's always positive and growing, right? Always. Yeah. Like there's never, never a negative, yeah. never anything. Yeah, it's like it's hard to find those honest relationships. I've been fortunate enough to make good relationships with other heads of RAs. Plus, you know, the Golden network of alumni has been amazing. Yep. You know, I can't speak highly enough of them that actually can have those open conversations. And say, Well, what's worked? What hasn't? What's stressing you? What's not? You know, because these things exist, I mean, you're running a business at the same time running a practice and everybody's creating something a little different, but you learn, at least that's how I learned. So I'm happy to share, you know, it is not for the faint of heart, right? There are certain people are just not built for it. Certain people that just can't take that risk. They're not going to run up that hill. Right. And I was like, and that's okay. They just won't have the rewards at the end. Yep. Not the same way. Uh, And that's always a consideration wouldn't change it for a minute, but
0: yeah. All uh, right. So how did, once the 90 days were up and you were back in business, what did portability look like? A billion four at Goldman. Once you were able to talk to clients again, what did it look like and what does it look like now in terms of assets?
1: Funny enough, we just surpassed a billion four assets under advisement in our recent SEC filing. So it's funny the numbers kind of line up in the same way. For people that are listening to this, as like I'd always encourage them to remember like going from wirehouse to independent is not a one-to-one equation. It depends on what you're doing and how you're doing it. So what may be a larger dollar amount at a wirehouse may actually be lesser when you go independent, but actually may actually earn you more fees, you know, at the same time, maybe more efficient of an account. Plus, you know, I made the distinct decision I didn't want to deal with institutions anymore, you know, at least not directly. So the whole RFB, you know, endowment framework. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I caught con- Cognizant, Cogniz- Cogniz- left behind, you know, a number of institutions, which was, you know, a decent piece of the billion floor, which is fine. As like, if the math actually worked out pretty well, when Dynasty always rid me on this, because they, um, who I, you know, had when I left, they would create these performance and say, oh, well, you're going to take 100% of the assets, 75% of the assets. I said, no, 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 does it show me 25% of the assets? I said, show me the numbers there, Mm -hmm. because that's what I want to build from. I want to see where my break even, like, what do I need? Then I can, of course, I'm going to strive for as much as possible. To me, that was actually really helpful because it really set into place. I'm like, huh, this translation economically works out really well, particularly if you believe in yourself and what you're building, which it did. You know, we probably brought over about 80% of the revenue that we wanted to capture. Transition was probably over nine months after I left.
0: What you're talking about is not only the risk of garden leave and being away from clients for nine days and taking the leap of faith of trusting clients in those relationships, but it's also the notion of being comfortable with shrink to grow, right? You're saying that four years later, you're back to where you were at Goldman. So part of that is really being okay with the notion of getting smaller to get bigger.
1: Yes. But understanding that, you know, it's like currency exchange, right? You take a dollar and you convert it to sterling and you get a certain amount more or less. Just because the number looks different doesn't mean the value is different. No question. You might actually have a better value by being in sterling than the U.S. dollar, right? As like, but it doesn't mean it's a one-for-one equation on a piece of paper. And that's exactly what this looks like here. And I quickly learned the value of having control and that independence. Because honestly, mm-hmm. the White House, you're paying a lot as an advisor. You just don't realize it. You know, you get sold a lot that, you know, you're with a big brand, you a big name. But when you look at the payout and you look at the restricted stock units and all of that aspect versus if you had control of your own growth and trajectory, it's just not comparable. I mean, it's so easy to overcome that if you are a successful advisor already to make that mathematically work, even if your AUA is not exactly the same as it was before. What would you rather have? You know, a billion four business that's XYZ profitable or a $600 million business that's 2X profitable. Yep. I'd rather have the 2X every day of the week. Right.
0: Yep. No, that's the key. And what that speaks to is whether you are long term focused or short term focused. Because the reality is, while you're right that a business with 600 million that you own is worth more at the end of the day to you than a business at a billion four that you don't own, six months in, when you're at a fraction of the billion four, When you left, even just from an ego perspective, it's hard. Not everybody could wrap their head around that, especially when you take into account you've walked away from X amount of restricted stock and it cost you money to set yourself up as an independent. I mean, it really takes a long-term view, a big picture view, a real tolerance for risk and trust and faith in your client relationships.
1: I would agree 100%. And the ego, I mean, look, funnily enough, the other thing I learned is that when you're at a Goldman or a JP Morgan, maybe equivalent ultra high net worth type practices, my practice was kind of middle of the road size, right? I mean, there are certainly many, many larger businesses, but I realized that outside of this world, yeah, it's a lot of money. But again, it's not about the assets. It's about the relationship oh, and sure. the assets under advisement number shouldn't matter as you're running a business. It should be the profitability in terms of how you're bringing these people on. Right. And building a business. And that, that's something I think people get lost in. They think they're going to lose this aspect. And it's okay. It's okay to leave some of the stuff behind.
0: Right. Well, it takes a big picture view. It takes an eye on the prize and not everybody's willing to do that, nor should they. Right.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your firm, Aaron Wealth Advisors. So I guess, first of all, what is the significance of the name Aaron?
1: Well, during the summer when I was on my garden leave, we were creating the name of the firm. I wanted something that purposely, directly had nothing to do with me. I I didn't want Hirschberg Asset Management. and I actually felt that kind of reduced value as well as went against the goal of what I wanted, which is this firm to live through multiple generations, frankly. That's my intention to build a brand that outlives me. So what we lived through was like, huh, let's figure out something that symbolizes though the ethics that I want to bring to my clients and the employees that work for us and the advisors, most importantly, um, who are going to represent our clients. So Aaron actually does have a personal connection. Aaron, my grandfather's name was Aaron, and I was close to my grandfather. He was born Aaron Herman Hirschberg. Funnily enough, he hated the name Aaron, and at 18, changed it to Herman Aaron Hershberg, so he died Herman. I wasn't going to name it Herman asset management, trust me. But Aaron was intriguing because I said, all right, so," and I got to give a shout-out to my rabbi because she was incredibly instrumental to help me think through this, is kind of did a deep dive into who Aaron was as a biblical character. That this makes sense, does this fit? And it turned out it did. I think not in a you know overly religious way, and that's certainly not our intention, but from an ethical perspective. And you know, you don't have to be religious in any way to know who Moses is. And Aaron was, frankly, your first comprehensive advisor to the most consequential character in biblical history. And that'd be Moses, mm-hmm. right? I was like, it's so um, if you read the stories with you know humility responsibility, and significant ethics, which are all the things I want the advisors that work for Aaron Wealth to institute with their service to their clients. So to me, it made perfect sense. And we got lucky enough that, you know, it was available as a name. And on top of it, I show up first in everybody's list. Unless you Uh, got aardvark wealth management, you don't have to be.
0: I love it. I love it. All right. So who works for Aaron Wealth today? Who are the advisors? I know Bill Andrakakis is the president and CIO. Who else is part of the team?
1: So we, when I originally launched, you know, we had three. It was my goal was to hire people from across Wall Street. We had three senior people: investment, client service, operations. Bill being one of my first hires. He came from Deutsche Bank and Northern Trust and been instrumental to the growth of our business. And George Condos, who was came from Morgan Stanley, really headed up our client service and equally so. It's incredible. Since then, we had multiple advisor hires we had our first was from morgan stanley and we subsequently took out a wonderful woman from jp morgan as well as jen berry who came from citigroup who's a 26 year veteran and then most recently another goldman advisor alex sudinsky who started our newport beach job so that's our advisory group you know our investment group has grown you know decently as well you know most senior being toby standard who's our head of you know portfolio management and and investment research so, and it's been wonderful. He also came from Northern Trust and used to work with Dope previously. So it's a nice, nice partnership there. It's worked really well. Probably not announced. We just hired our new expansion in New Beach, a new client service person. So, you know, we're continuing to expand as we need to it. I'm a big believer in investing in growth. And from the advisor side, I'm just trying to find one person at a time. Yeah. Right. I was like, I'm trying to find the elite group of people that want to join eventually and earn a partnership in Aaron Wallet. Mm. Uh, that have that motivation, that want to be able to, you know, and that could be individuals as it has been so far. It's been teams, you know, my next expansion most likely is going to be Indianapolis, which we've been having conversations with people down there to leave and be the face of Aaron Wealth in that market. And if I found somebody tomorrow in Denver, that was the right person, I'd open up the Denver office, you know, of Aaron Wealth. Mm-hmm. And we build around those folks. At least that's the framework that we're looking at.
0: Right. So you describe Aaron as the next generation of wealth management. What do you mean by that?
1: You know, I should really redefine that as the next generation of ultra high net worth wealth management.
0: Okay. That's fair. That's like,
1: it's really, and it's kind of interesting point off to go, but take a note of that. It's really providing um, families of our size that we deal with, with an alternative to hiring their own family office employee. It's being able to do so fully uh, without conflict and on the same side of the table as the clients. So not having any interest in product, not having any interest in custodian, lending, none of it, right? And being able to be just like I I told my clients when they sign up, or at least they're thinking to sign up for us. I said, look, they give us as this. If you went out on your own and you wanted to hire someone like myself or my advisors to be your employee in your own family office, would you like to do that and go through all that kind of headache? Or could you outsource it to us, right? And do the same thing. And that's the service that we're providing. And to me, that's kind of a next generation. It's not mixing the whole product aspect of things, and really bringing on a higher level planning aspect to everything as well.
0: And and what you mean by that is that you are the advisor, and you are on behalf of your clients going out and shopping the street for best in class, whatever it is—lending, investments, structured products, etc. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I can give you an example. Just this, you know, last month I have a family that I'm in the middle of a lot of you know their ins and outs, complicated framework. We just spent the last two months interviewing various independent trust companies, um, where I sat side by side with the clients to be able to add our expertise and analysis and ultimately work together to decide where they wanted to go. And then I helped lead the negotiation on fees. But being partnered with a larger firm now, like us at Aaron, it helps the clients, right? They have some heft because all these vendors and all these providers, they don't view it as a client specific, they view it as a firm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is powerful. And we've learned that as like, it goes for investment access as well. As like no, no one views a single client anymore. Right as what you're looking at as a fund. You can actually aggregate your influence. Right. So yes, advocating and being only loud, that I could never do that previously. Now again. And it's incredibly valuable for the client.
0: Yeah. And you also say, Gary, that your previous experience in the institutional side was pretty valuable, that clients benefit from your comprehensive services without institutional constraints. So what does that mean exactly? Right.
1: I mean that's mostly having to do with when you invest as a client with a wirehouse that also is a custodian. The custodian actually leads a lot of those restrictions. What you can actually do and access? Can you advise on products that are outside of things that are custodied a firm? Can you opine upon you know an international issue perhaps as like without having running into full on bureaucratic issues that are specific or compliance issues specific just because of the nature of combining custodianship product and advisory in the same firm. By removing ourselves from that and just being advisors, we have much more flexibility to be able to, you know let like to tell my clients what what do you need? What do you want? We'll come up with a solution for you because we don't have an interest in it anymore. Mm. Outside of providing that information and that thought process to the best of our ability to those clients. That freed us completely.
0: Yeah. And what about your tech stack? How does your technology as an independent compare to what you had at Goldman?
1: All due respect to my previous you know, alma mater, As like the ability to be able to choose your FinTech has been mind-blowing. Awesome, right? Because, you know, as everybody knows, FinTech has blown up a lot of innovations left and right. But to be able to individually say this is a really a great solution and sign it up without having any interference is just great. You know, I almost fell out of my share. Like, you know, I, there's a group we, we work with called Ethic, and that's mostly in our environmental social governance side of things. They are an asset manager, but they're, I call them a technology and a wonderful one. I was like, when I saw what they could do for clients to customize on their values and the reporting ability, technology-based, I almost fell out of my chair. Because I was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for to be able to really make that difference for clients and I sign them up immediately. You know, they tell you I was one of their first investors and when they created their, they're I mean, coming now. they're much larger. Right? right. And successful. Same with like an Adipar, for example, it's been a wonderful partner technologically and to be able to really customize and use that resource in the way we want to and invest in that. It's just been, it's been great. And the clients will tell you that. They're just blown away by that.
0: Yeah. And Gary, to what extent has Dynasty, who you partnered with to launch the firm and still partner with to help you navigate the firm, to what extent have they been impactful in selecting your tech stack or helping you build things out?
1: I mean, they've been greatly impactful. I mean, that's part of the reason why we you know, hired them in the first place was because going back to the whole 90 days and competing, you know, at the time I had to, when I made the decision to build Earn Wealth, I had a very little time. To do so but i knew i needed to produce something that could compete with goldman immediately on the face of it uh, which we did and the only way i was able to do that which thankfully enough thank you for the introduction of the dynasty they have wonderful people and the ability to, to have that access and the tech stack immediately was just instrumental so when we launched we were able to go head to head and say to my i can look at my clients and say i can give you everything you had when you were at goldman but more right, and better, and here's why, and you can make your own decision. Dynasty was instrumental in be able to provide that. So their ability to access some of these vendors or bring new vendors that we haven't seen has been really, really helpful.
0: Great. Okay, so tell us what you think the future holds for Aaron Wealth. You know, what do you think the firm will look like five and 10 years from now?
1: Good question. My goal is to hire excellent, elite advisors in various areas around the country that work together as a partnership, you know, that they come in, they earn their keep and then they can buy into the business itself. And it would be mostly like, almost like an old school partnership model where everybody's working as an ensemble and can bring the best of their abilities to all clients across the world. Our intention is not to mass grow in any way. Our intention is to very much be strategic. I'm limiting my advisors to 25 to 30 relationships and then they're done. And ultimately, as I'm doing now, which is training the advisors that are here, is that when they succeed, they will then bring will bring in younger advisors and they will train them. I go back to that original culture I talked about at Goldman of senior people, you know, training junior people that's in this time, everybody will have an incentive to do it no matter what. And I think that's just something that's very self-sustaining.
0: Right. So what do you think the end game is? What do you think looks like when you are ready to, will you sell the business? Will you pass it on to the next generation? What does it look like?
1: It's probably the latter. That's my goal. I have no intention of not building this to sell it. I'm building it to pass it on to whatever the next generation is, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's one of my children. I don't know. I said, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the partners that are there. Maybe one day, as like funny as like when, when I started air wealth, I can't tell you how many people and I, I was joking as well, the people that are the weakest, you know, make comments of the fact that I named myself CEO of air wealth or created various things that I, like, you know, basically poo pooed it. And I tell people, I'm like, listen, as like, if you don't have great ideas and great wishes, you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. I was like, so i say things like maybe we go public, we'll sell anything. If we get big enough and are elite enough, that's a possibility. Always is. Seems like a natural step for someone in our position. But again, That's late finance of mice and men. Right now, we're just really early and focused on, you know, finding good people. That's what I want to do. I want to invest in good people.
0: And you said you're growing one elite advisor at a time and one client at a time, which is probably the appropriate thing. There's probably a million more questions I could ask you, but I want to ask you one final one that I ask most people that I interview is what would your message be to other prospective breakaway advisors? So with the benefit of hindsight, is this a move you would make again? What would you say to them?
1: I would say to take a moment and really think internally about your ability and tolerance for risk and be honest with yourself about it, but then to really, truly reach out to those that have done it before. I was like, you know, utilize this as an incredibly generous community of people that run RAs. It's funny, I don't, I don't feel like I compete with other RAs. It's, it's people are willing to share and be a support. Because frankly, I'm with them because people do that for me. So I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people that they reach out and I'm happy to tell them about my experience, answer the questions, give them the strength or, or give them the path to say maybe this isn't your right decision to go down a different framework. And got to tell you, I've gotten one or two leads out of that. That we're still having conversations that potentially it makes more sense for them to join an ARMO. That That is what I would do. So if I was somebody in that position, I would seek more carefully, you know, similarly carefully, but you know, like carefully choosing who you're going to talk to, that counsel for people who have been there before. And you'll find that they're very willing to do so.
0: Yep. Well, I think you're 100% right. And actually, one of the benefits, one, one of actually the unintended benefits, but happy benefits of this podcast series is that by me interviewing someone like you, an advisor listening who has questions about your experience can certainly call you, but you're telling him what your experience is. All they have to do is listen to this and hear your experience and many others who we've interviewed as well. So there's lots of ways to access the experience and the knowledge. Knowledge of what is you're right, a very generous community. Absolutely. So, Gary, I thank you. You've done a great job. It was a privilege and pleasure to counsel you before you moved. It's a privilege and pleasure to hear how you've grown and what you're building now, four years in. And I look forward very much to continuing the conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, with you.
0: Gary credits his background and the culture he grew up with at Goldman as the basis for his extraordinary success, a heritage that serves to frame how he sees Aaron evolving in the years to come. It's an important lesson to keep in mind. That is, the experiences we have are a powerful reference to help us define our way forward. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space, without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor See our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.